Hello, everybody. I hope that just life is treating you well. God is smiling on you. And today, we're going to be talking about a, a very important topic. And as mothers and fathers out there, uh, this is very specific to us with kids and how to help those that live with us and work with us and work for us that have kids. And that is the mental health and the drug addiction that is rising rapidly in our kids. It is disturbing. We're, I was doing some research and I'm here with Steve Grant. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, John. Yeah, I'm really excited to have Steve here. So, uh, Steve, you're a good old Jersey boy. I can hear it in your voice. <laughs> but, <laughs> 40 but years in the south the last 40 years. In yeah. the south the last 40 years. Well, Jersey hasn't left you. So That's right. Awesome. I love Jersey. You've been in the financial services world, insurance. We have some things here. But here's something. In, you're going to hear this in Steve's story. But his sons, Chris and Kelly, he lost both of his sons to accidental drug overdoses. And through that, he started the Chris and Kelly's Hope Foundation. And he also wrote an amazing book called Don't Forget Me. He does a lot of speaking to high school students and you were a basketball coach. And here is why we need to really focus on this. I'm just looking at the stats. If we want to look at stats um, from the National Institute on Drug Abuse, just this year, youth overdoses are up almost 15%. And here's something else I know. Um, suicide, it was interesting. A friend of mine, Jim, who we had on here, Steve, works at the Crisis Text Line. And if anybody out there wants an amazing resource that you can give to your kids, give to a coworker that you have around, and you don't want to talk to somebody on the phone, Crisis Text Line, CTL, you can Google them and get the number to text to them. And they, they're trained from whether it's drug abuse, physical abuse, but what they're seeing, Steve, what surprised them was the amount of people texting in to talk about suicide dropped. But the people texting in, especially the younger kids, talking about abuse, isolation, neglect, drugs, skyrocketed, like literally up 50%. And what we're seeing, which is scary, you know, you have the access to some of the things that we typically think about. Yeah, uh, meth, heroin, cocaine, lot excess drinking. And we're talking about our kids, though. We're talking about 14 to 22-year-olds, right? We're talking about those kids that are living underneath our roof. The, one of the biggest rises is prescription drugs. So guess what? They're at home, and they're figuring out how to get them. So here's what we're going to talk about today. This is a real conversation that we all need to have from Steve, and I thank you so much for coming out and sharing after what you've personally gone through with this happening to both, both of your, your, your two boys, your only boys. And what, not only what the problem is, but hey, how do we address it? How do we get ahead of it? Prevention. And if we've, if this is somebody you're listening and this happened to you, or you know somebody that's happened to you, I know in the, uh, this entire book you wrote, Steve, is designed to give people hope. And it's amazing. So with that, I'd love to just turn it over to you right now, Stephen. Maybe go back a bit before what happened to Chris and Kelly and give us a little bit about your journey as kind of we walk through this with you. 
Well, before I got through these issues, I was married. I, I grew up in Paramus, New Jersey, as you said, and I, I went to school uh, here in Greenville, South Carolina on a small baseball scholarship at Furman University and uh, married uh, right out of college, someone also from Furman and uh, mm -hmm. married for 25 years uh, nearly. And then, you know, had Chris and Kelly uh, soon after we married and they grew up in Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, where, I, where, as you said, I've been in the financial services business for 40 years, and you know, obviously, got got to this point where we had a 14. Our son was 14, our oldest, Chris, and he started developing the issues and the tendencies towards leaning towards drugs and alcohol, and uh, that began the next eight years of our life. And then uh, our other son uh, passed away. In uh, actually, it's going to be 10 years on Friday. 10 years on Saturday, mm -hmm. then took a tremendously different path than his brother did, uh, different path. So that's sort of my experience with that. I obviously going to get into detail. John, you talk about suicide and crisis line. I, I actually helped start the crisis line in Greenville, South Carolina years ago. Wow. And it actually helped me, the training for that phone call from that person and what they say actually helped me when I did my first uh, I first started realizing my 14-year-old was using drugs and alcohol. I mean, he was. When people call you on sometimes on a on a suicide crisis line, they're not telling you they want to hurt themselves, but they say things that uh, have some finality to them. And uh, my son was saying that I was his best friend in this world, and I told him that, and I, I told him I appreciated that, but uh, then I shouldn't be his best friend in the world when he's 14. And that scared me. Wow. Yeah, because I could see being like, wow, thanks, buddy. Right? That's awesome. What made you think that that was actually a bit out of sorts? I don't know if I would have picked up on that. Yeah, well, I think it, had, it definitely had to do with the training. It was just he came downstairs one night and he said, Dad, I don't want to be a – and he used a bad word. I don't want to be a you up. Okay. And I said, why would you say oh, that? Oh, like, I don't want to be a screw-up, but a different word. Right. Okay. But a different word. Yeah, I don't want to be a screw-up. And he kept saying that. And I kept saying, well, why would you say that you are? And he really couldn't tell me. Uh, so, of course, that's my curiosity. But then about a week later, I was really in the same room, and I was reading this, probably the same book still. And he came and said, Dad, you're my only friend in this world. And I said, I'm your only friend in this world? that doesn't make sense. You're the only freshman on the basketball team. You're, you know, you got girls in here all the time. You got boys in here all the time. You know, I'm your only friend in this world. So that rose the hair in the back of my neck. And I knew that I had to get in touch with someone. And I did immediately the next day. And I actually had him in a psychiatrist's office uh, within two days of a very good psychiatrist that I and knew. How, how old was he then? He was 14 then. Okay. So, uh, and then, you know, he told the psychiatrist said, your son's life is being controlled by alcohol and drugs. And I went, what, what, you know, and at uh, 14. Yeah. Yeah. Now you said something to me when we were talking before, when people start, when kids start that young, the, it, it is more, it is very difficult to shake because I'm, I'm guessing it has to do with where they are developmentally and their brain. So it actually, gets its hooks in even a little bit tighter when they do start younger. Absolutely. I speak to a lot of parents and I talk to them as a parent, not as an addictionologist or anything like that. 
But there are a lot of statistics out there that say age of first use is a big indicator of uh, whether you can have lifelong sobriety. And uh, it really seems to look that way. Uh, Christopher went to five different rehabs and a boarding school during an eight-year period. And it just, everything we did just kept, it worked for a very, very short period of time and then uh, started again. And, uh, but age of first use is a big deal. And you're right, because it, it robs you of your adolescence, alcohol, drugs, they rob you of your adolescence at that age. Your brain hasn't developed enough. Christopher, I think, was probably 16 maturity-wise when he died at 21. You know, as you went through that with Chris and you're learning and you write about this in the book. So, you know, other parents right now that are maybe kind of in that place, their kids are 14 to 18, and you know, you've probably had those arguments. Like I grew up, my brother was that kid, right? And right. quite frankly, what I saw in my brother, this the anger, the screaming, fighting, yelling with my parents, breaking things, I mean, my the house was just this constant place of just chaos. And, you know, being, I was six years younger than my brother. So watching this, me and one of my good friends made a vow that we weren't going to do any drugs, not even drink in high school. And we were kind of like each other's accountability partner. But I watched my parents go through that. I think it was one of the hardest things that they ever did. My brother didn't get sober until he was 30. And I know, and he's, it, this has affected him his whole life, that whole very long period. But if I'm in the middle of that chaos, because, I mean, what, what is irrational seems rational to somebody who's using, right? That's right. What is illogical, completely, and fact-based fact is not logical or is illogical to somebody who's in that place. It's a very hard place to communicate into. One of my good friends has struggled with that with a couple of his sons, right? And any thoughts or advice if you're, if somebody's listening right now or they have a friend that they know their kids are struggling with this on maybe just those first couple small steps, Steve? You know, it's hard to identify because again, I get parents to call me and, and unfortunately it, it does take toll on marriages and most of the time, I would say nine out of 10 times, I'm speaking to one of the parents because they're either separated or they're going through a divorce or they are divorced. And much of it had to do with, with the issue with their kids. But I just answer your question. You know, I get these calls where, oh, my son, I found some marijuana in my son's pocket when I was, doing, when I was cleaning out his pants to do, my, to do the laundry. Now, yeah. that in and of itself doesn't mean your son's an addict, Okay. But it does mean that you should probably be aware of what's going on, okay? And, and certainly you want to ask them, why is there marijuana in your, in your uh, pocket and you're 14 or 15 years old, uh, right? So, you know, obviously there's some obvious things. Uh, we had beer cans underneath our, our couches because uh, when the cleaning service came in, they asked us why we had so many beer cans under our couch. I couldn't figure out why either. Uh, well, obviously, I didn't put them there. My wife didn't put them there. So there are some signs, but uh, people ask me all the time, how do you know when uh, there's a really an issue, okay? Yeah. Um, yeah. Separate of those small events. And it always boils down to when there's a direct, when there's a real, real change in what they're doing. Uh, 
when other things are not as important as alcohol or drugs. So when that drug takes over or alcohol takes over, you're going to do that in favor of anything else. So they, they drop out of the team they're playing on. Uh, they don't go to work anymore. They're always absent from school, unbeknownst to you. It becomes some real obvious signs, and it is when that drug or alcohol starts to control your behavior. Okay, so what do you do then? Let's say I did, let's say, yeah, like uh, my good friend, uh, his son was a absolute rock star, made the varsity football team as a freshman. And after freshman year, he just told his dad he's not interested anymore. Right. Like, I don't want to play anymore. You know, I'm always getting hurt. And he dropped out of football that he had loved up to that point. And I don't know if they realized at the time there was a really deep underlying drug issue going on. But let's just say you're seeing some of those overt signs. How do well, you get involved with a 14 or 15 or 16-year-old who's probably also very skilled at hiding it because they're hanging out with friends who are all talking about how we're keeping this from our parents, aren't they? Experts. Experts. And I go into some of the things that Christopher did. Uh, I don't mention Kelly because Kelly really wasn't very entirely different, but Christopher was classic in the sense that he used to divert me from going home, telling me to pick up something at somebody else's house in their mailbox because he didn't want me to run into his drug deal going down in our driveway. And they're very good at it. They're very good at it. And, you know, you want to trust and you want to believe your kids when they tell you something, but when drugs and alcohol are controlling them, it is very, very difficult to believe them. And I think parents at some point have to cross the line and say, I don't believe anything you're telling me to tell you the truth. I mean, I remember one time telling my son Christopher that I didn't know him anymore. And that just shocked him. In fact, he started crying and because I really didn't know him anymore. And uh, to answer your question, uh, that's why I brought Christopher right away to see a psychiatrist because most people that call me say, I'm not sure if there's a mental health issue here or if it's a drug and alcohol issue. Well, it's typically for boys, it is a drug and alcohol issue. Uh, girls, maybe it might be less, less of that, maybe more of, on a mental health side is what people say. But get an expert's opinion as soon as you can. And hopefully you go to an addictionologist who's also a psychiatrist who's also an addictionologist. They're out there. And they know the signs, and, and they can pretty much uh, confirm what you're doing. I mean, I, I ended up doing a drug test on Christopher one time just to confirm it with me when he came home from school. And he ran upstairs, believe it or not, John, he ran upstairs, and he had ordered a bottle of urine off the Internet. And this is when the Internet was not popular, okay? It wasn't popular yet. But somehow he ordered a, a bottle of urine from a guy who manufactures and sells urine over the Internet. Uh, legally. Okay. And uh, he received it at our house and he bought it because his friends who are also addicted to drugs and alcohol said, listen, you got to have some urine around because one of these days your parents are going to do a drug test on you. Right. So I had these two nurses because of the industry I'm in, they're there to give Christopher a, a, get his urine sample. Right. He says, let me put my books upstairs, dad. Uh, so I said, go right ahead. Right. And so he puts his books upstairs uh, of course, he fills up uh, something with this fake urine, and then he goes in the downstairs bathroom with the container that the nurses give him. And uh, But this time, the nurse says, hey, Christopher, this urine is too cold. 
It can't be yours. And I, I, I was just stunned. I just stunned. I'm sitting there going, my son is using fake urine, you know? And it, I, I'm laughing a little bit now, but at the time it was like, holy crow. And that, that, that kind of told me where this is really getting. Because you're right, they are armed and they know all the tricks. And the tricks get even better, I think, as they go along. So it is really, it's an interesting things that happen, but, but get help uh, immediately. Um, you know, here's a question for you. I, I would think, cause we've had this with our boys, you know, where we felt, you know what, we need to get a therapist, right? And we have some great Christian counselors, Christian therapists that we know and making the suggestion to go to somebody. Oh my gosh. Did they push back hard yeah. on that? One of the things that we found is I sat there and talked with one of my sons about what was going on, about his level of happiness, like uh, struggling with depression. And I talked to the therapist. I'm like, well, my son doesn't want to come see you. As a matter of fact, he refuses, you know, and he's 17 and he's as big as me at this point, right? Threatening him, take away the car, whatever, wasn't, he didn't care. So what the therapist coached me to do is really have a conversation about what was missing in his life, what he really wanted, and why don't we go talk to somebody, not for therapy, not for counseling, but who can listen to you and give you some tools to just make a little bit of improvements in some of these areas that just make you feel better about yourself and your life. And that worked. He, he, because of that kind of approach – he went and met with them enough where actually it, it really did help. It was, I got to tell you, I was really encouraged. And fortunately, in a huge answer to prayers, he's in a good place today. That's wonderful. Any other thoughts, though, when you're trying to, when you're in this place and that the, they know that this would be like admitting and there's a lot of shame, guilt, fear, I'm sure going on in their their brains when this is, if this starts to come to the light, that's why they fight so hard for it not to be exposed to be able to get somebody into get help who absolutely doesn't want it. Well, you know, there's absolutely, there's places out there that you can actually call obviously. And Hey, say, go pick up my son. And he's, you know, these interventionists that come, they do these like the television show. They do come to your house. uh, And some that are very bad, they get swept away in the middle of the night and they go to some place, you know, uh, and they under as long as they're under a certain age, they can't leave. So there are those, but obviously, I think that's the drastic thing. I think once you find out, uh, once you really recognize that they are, uh, then you've got to start obviously doing some things. Uh, we talked about this earlier in the conversation. Well, you know, when the, when other friends came over, their the book bags were in, it, uh, stayed downstairs. Okay. Uh, all the doors in the bedrooms have to be shut, have to be open, right? Uh, book bags downstairs. Uh, when you go spend the night over someone's house, uh, you want, I want to speak to the parents to make sure they're on board with you staying there. You wouldn't believe how many times that the, the, that changed when my sons would tell me they're spending the night someplace. And they usually typically then end up staying at our house where they're supposed to stay. Okay. Uh, then all of a sudden the kids are not really coming over anymore because Mr. Grant leaves the book bags downstairs, right? So uh, short of body searching people, you know, I was trying to do everything I could. And then, you know, as a parent, 
you talked about guilt. Well, a lot of parents, they want to turn because of guilt or shame. As a parent, I never felt those things. I just wanted to help my kids. I didn't worry about, I never worried about what people thought of me. But a lot of people think badly of you. Uh, and, and a lot of people don't like that. And, and so there's a certain element of shame going on in the parent's life. But you've got to get by that. And you've got to be as positive as you can with your son and daughter. Let them know at every turn that you love them, uh, no matter what. And you're going to be there for them. Are you going to be there for Well, yeah, and I want to highlight there, I think it's so important because I think it's a false belief that a lot of us think we're going to be judged if our kids have made these bad decisions by our church, our pastor. And I know for a fact, because I've talked to so many pastors and counselors and the church staffs as we've gotten involved in this issue, is that, man, they get it. They've either gone through it themselves, their own kids have gone through it as pastors, they're working with people daily who are, are working through this. So if you think that there's that person maybe at church or somebody you want to call and reach out to uh, who might judge you, I, that's almost the enemy using those little whispers to prevent you from taking action because you've right. got the hooks in your kids. And I would tell you that I really think this is one area that, from my own personal experience, the people in the, you know, traditional church world, people you can reach out to, guess what? Unfortunately, they get it. Oh, yeah, they do. There's so many, and you're not alone, by the way. You might feel totally alone and isolated and fearful dealing with this. And like Steve's out here sharing, and I know for a fact that there's other people not only that have gone through this, but they want to help. They want your child to be completely redeemed, to be healed, to be healthy, to come back in a relationship with you and with God. And, and a lot of people have dedicated their life just to that. You're absolutely right. I, I would pr- probably venture to guess that uh, that uh, the one, number one and number two thing a pastor hears about is marriage problem or, or a drinking or substance abuse problem. Yeah. And financial is probably going to be right there too. That's true. So, you know, if you're sitting here struggling with this, you don't know what to do you know, reach out to somebody at church, reach out to your pastor, reach out to, um, you know, one thing that was hard for us, maybe you have some advice on this to actually find somebody that I think would, who was a a Christian who was trained as a therapist or a counselor who I thought would work well with my son. Cause there's a couple of people we met with where, you know, he's like, there's no way I'm seeing that clown again. And I was like, yeah, I agree. I agree. Like yeah. that was weird. I mean, well, they're, they're, they're out uh, there. How do you find I, somebody good? Well, you start asking. And, uh, you know, I, my closest friend was, uh, led me to Christ. And, you know, a lot of times I'll say, John, you know, who do you know? You know, and cause I'll know that it, whether it's to get my car washed or to, to go to a, uh, make me a suit or something like that, you know, and John will say this, this fellow, and I know he's just devout. This fellow is a devout Christian, but, there are Christian counselors uh, services that are truly Christian counseling services. And I think that's what you also have to be very careful of too. And there are also very many Christians out there who are actually in in active recovery. And there are biblically based Christian based uh, 12 step uh, rehab facilities. I just got off the phone this morning with a young man in Greensboro who I'm helping through a scholarship of my foundation, go to a, a recovery, 
a place called Beach House Recovery in Sunset Beach, North Carolina. And uh, I know the guy that runs it, the staff runs it. They're devout Christians, and they're all in recovery. One thing I did find out, John, and I didn't know because I was ahead of my time. My first son died 15 years ago. My second son died, as I said in the beginning, earlier, 10 years ago on this Saturday. I didn't know anybody who died of a drug overdose when my son Christopher died of his drug overdose. I didn't know, the only person I knew when Kelly died of a drug overdose was his brother, okay? I, I did all this research for my son, my first son. I was sort of like, I thought I was an island unto myself and I didn't realize there was all this help out there. And today there's a hundred times more of that help because we hear about someone dying of an accidental drug overdose once a week and it happens every day, believe it or not, in this country. So there's plenty of help out there, and uh, I have to admit, I was guiltily, I was naive to think that there wasn't a whole lot of help back 15 years ago when, when my son Christopher was going through it. What, what is the best way, if this is some, something, somebody's right there now, right? Reach out to, ask friends, opinions, talk to your pastor. Any, any other advice on how to find some good actual help? You have to... Um, I'm on a board at the Medical University of South Carolina, and one of the board members is a, a certified psychiatrist, but also a dictionologist, and actually also happens to be a devout Christian, too. And I refer a lot of people to him. I think you have to have a strong, no matter who you are, you have to have a strong background in addiction. That's, I think, tantamount to this whole thing. You, not, not Maybe you don't have to have experienced it yourself, but you have to be pretty knowledgeable about it. Now, let me ask you a question, Steve, if you don't mind. You know, uh, you know, after Chris and both Kelly passed away, I can't even imagine what that was like to walk through. And you share about that in the book and how your faith played a role big time in that. And if you don't mind, I'd love for you to share, because I'm sure there are some people listening who are, unfortunately, on, on kind of on that side of the journey. Yeah, there's a lot of us out there that are in that fraternity that we didn't want to be in. Yeah. And, you know, I get that question every time I speak about how do I get through that every day. And I'll, I'll tell you how this started, but obviously I get through it because I know I'm going to see my kids again one day. Mm. And I'm convinced of that, and I truly believe it. So I get comforted by that knowledge. But when this started – if we go backwards to January of 2011, and Kelly had just died uh, about three weeks before. So here's my second son who's passed away. He was addicted for eight months. Christopher was addicted for eight years. Christopher died of a cocaine and methadone overdose. Kelly died of a heroin overdose after eight months. And he fast-tracked to the number one horriblest thing. And uh, he passed away, which was a real shock to me at the time, very different from his brother, but I was at a meeting, and it was these two guys from St. Louis, and I think you know one of them well, uh, John O'Leary, and mm -hmm. the other one is, was Ben Newman. Both of them have written plenty of books, and they're both public speak uh, national, international public speakers today. But they were just starting out, and we were invited to a meeting here at our local chamber with the other uh, sales professionals. And the guy who led our office said, Steve, I need a little gray hair at this meeting mind going it's a three-day boot camp so I said wow you know the last thing I really wanted to do was go to a, a meeting that talked to me about how to be a better salesperson at this point in my life especially in light of my son just passing away three weeks earlier 
Well, that was actually kind of a big ask, wasn't it, Steve? Yeah, it was. And he knew it, and I went to it. So, and, and this is where, where God's plan was. Uh, it, had, it actually started there. And I, and I got to that meeting, and, and I'm sitting there going, okay, they're going to talk about sales. They're going to talk about sales. And then O'Leary and Ben said, well, we're not going to talk about how you're going to be better salespeople and better business people. We're going to talk to you about what your legacy is going to be when you leave this life. And I literally in the first 10 minutes of this, and I'm going, okay, well, let's, this is interesting. So there must be 50 people there. And I didn't know a lot of them and they didn't know me. They didn't know my circumstances. And we went around the room and they, cause he said, your legacy may change after the next three days, or you may crystallize it after the next three days, but they made us tell what our legacy was going to be at that moment. Okay. Well, that's a pretty heavy question. What's your legacy going to be when you leave this life? Uh, there were plenty of 25-year-olds in that room. They weren't all 60 years old like me. And they came to me, and I said, I want to do everything I can. I want to be known as the person who did everything he could to help young adults and adolescents who struggle with alcohol, drugs, and depression. And that was it, right? I don't know why I said it, <laughs> but I had no intention of saying it <laughs> uh, when I walked in there. And I had no intention of doing that when I walked in there. And I always tell folks that, that, you know, God was with me that day. And I think he spoke for me because I'm the right person to, to have done that. Because uh, I, the right person to have said that, I was the right person to be touched by God. And then I started the Kristen Kelly's Hope Foundation uh, soon after that. So that day I drew a line in the sand that this is what I was going to do. And again, if you had asked me five minutes before I got to that meeting, you know, what my legacy in life is going to be. I'm not sure I would answer that question, but it just, so it's just amazing. Wow. So coming out of that, well, I'm sure you, you, you were also grieving through this whole period. Yes. Uh, it's on your heart to make a difference. How did you process through all that? Cause I'm sure you had some good days and some bad days. And I still do. I still do. They're rare. They're obviously not as often because Again, I have a great faith that I'll see my sons again. But, you know, obviously, if you don't, you're going to question the plan. Everybody says, well, wow, Steve, I wouldn't be here if I lost both my children, my only children. You know, and it is difficult. But I think a lot of uh, grief is built on guilt. And to tell you the truth, John, I did grieve, but uh, I had no guilt. If you said, what would I do differently? I might do some things differently, but it was what I knew to do at the time. And uh, so I left it on the field for both my boys. And uh, so the guilt part of this grief, I didn't have. So a lot of people want me to talk about that, but I didn't have, again, I was not feeling guilty about what I did or what I didn't do because I did a lot because everything I read about having an addicted child, oh, you're going to go through a divorce. You're going to have financial problems. You're going to have legal problems. You're going to have problems with the law, you know, you're going to have problems with your other children. You know, you might have an unwanted pregnancy, uh, you know, a, a baby arrive. You know, other than, other than that last one, everything happened. And I said to myself, this is never going to happen to me. When Christopher started this, I, I was reading things and I said, this is not going to happen to my family. We're going to be through with this in 28 days. Uh, well, you know, sorry. Yeah, addiction doesn't work that way, does it? No, no. No. Well, what I'm hearing in there, right, is when you're in this situation, for people listening, right, 
we can get help. We can educate ourselves. We can pray. Well, you know, as you went through all this, you know, what role did your faith and prayer life help you or inform you as you walked through this whole journey with the boys and afterwards? Well, it was, that was my support. And to tell you the truth, when I was writing this book, when I finally got around to writing it, because everyone said, Steve, you need to write a book. Uh, I sought out someone that could tell me the why, but it, he was a, he's a guy, a Christian who has written several books named James Campbell, but he's also an addictionologist and I trusted him and I knew him and through writing this book and he, interviewing with him and he gave me the why because everyone says, well, why does this happen, Steve? Well, he helped me understand the why I needed a, a professional and I needed a, Christian to say, here's the why in this thing. And I surround myself with positive people all the time. And if I'm not, then I'll be polite and leave. But if uh, I try my best to surround myself with people who are positive and people who are believers. So that's a great point too, right? That power of the association, who you're surrounding yourself with as you go through this. I know that was has been incredibly important for our families. We've gone through a number of different challenges, right? Because if I'm down and negative and kind of disconnected, some, you know, God says, abide in me and I'll abide in you. And God's always abiding here in me. And sometimes I forget to do my part. And it's those parts, those separations that can drive this wedge. And having those people in my life, I was very careful of my association, having those people around me that could speak life, right? Sometimes just sit there with me quietly, right? It didn't have to be some big, deep conversation. I didn't want people to come and sit there and encourage me on a really bad day, but sometimes just say a couple things to help put things back in context. But that is so important. And if you don't have that, because I didn't have that at some times, but reaching out intentionally to connect to some people like you did with John O'Leary and, and others to find that. Because afterwards, you and John became friends, right? Yes, we become close friends. I've helped John get some speaking, speaking engagements. And whenever he's in Greenville, we, we have dinner and uh, I try to go hear him talk because he gets better and better each time. Oh, he's amazing. Boy, what a story he has. My wow. goodness. Yeah. So everybody out there... Um, Steve's website, it's the chriskellyhope.org. So it's C-H-R-I-S and Kelly is K-E-L-L-Y. So chriskellyhope.org. And your book, um, you guys can go to don'tforgetmebook.com. And then I love your subtitle here, A Lifeline of Hope for Those Touched by Substance Abuse and Addiction. So, you know, just... With that, as we kind of wrap up, Steve, any just final thoughts you'd like to leave with people listening? Because I know we have people either going through this journey or in this environment that we're in now, and I think things have been, unfortunately, we're seeing more of this, right? We know people that are hurting, and they might not want, they also might not want to be talking about it because, you know, they might feel guilty or ashamed. Unfortunately, right? That that could be a reaction, which I understand, but that isolates us. And staying isolated is not the place we need to be. But 
With that, just any final thoughts? No, you're absolutely right. The COVID is certainly hasn't helped the drug and alcohol and mental health world. Uh, it's only hurt it. And the sooner we figure it out, the sooner we can ad- go back to addressing some of these other public health issues that are just all over the place. And I would just encourage anybody who who's either experienced what I have, or maybe is going through it, or you've got perfectly great kids already at this stage of life, just keep communicating, keep communicating and keep believing in the Lord that these things will work out. That's easy to say, but you know, I, whenever I signed the book, I put Luke 12, 48 at the bottom and that's, uh, you know, too much is given, much is expected. And a lot of times people say, you know, you, you someone like you, you know, you've also been dealt a big blow. Well, yeah, I have, but I've been given uh, so much all my life. So I want to give back to those that are struggling with this and, and other things. Well, thank you, Steve, for coming on and talking about this. You know, this is a, a tough subject, but it's real, has real consequences. And, you know, there's times Dr. Dobson wrote a book, When God Doesn't Make Sense. And he's talking about subjects exactly like this, right? To us, in our mind, it, it just doesn't compute how the, your beautiful young Chris, after watching everything that happened, or Kelly, after watching everything that happened to Chris, uh, would make the decisions that he made. Yep. Right? That happened so fast. And oh, my goodness. So I just want to tell everybody out there is, you know what? If you're going through this, you're not alone. God's right here with you. There's people that have gone through this, like Steve and so many others that have gone through it. Uh, There's help. God's right there. And uh, just thank you for what you're doing, Steve. And uh, I really uh, just appreciate this conversation, uh, this time. And honestly, everybody out there listening, Steve and I's prayer before we started was, you know what, if this conversation just saves one life. Yeah. If there's one family that maybe has uh, already gone through this, but they hear what's happened with Steve and, you know, that there was reconciliation, there was redemption, there was wholeness afterwards, or maybe there's a son or a daughter whose life is altered in a positive way because you heard this and you were encouraged to maybe take a step And that's our prayer. And if that's you who's out there, we'd love to hear from you. And if there's anything Steve or I can do for you as you go through this, let us know. I mean, well, anything I can do to help or share. Yeah. And Steve, what's your website? How do people get in touch with you, Steve? Well, you can, as I say, you, you, www.chris.chriskellyhope.org and and you can get right through to me uh, with an email and as many people do. And I would strongly encourage you to do that. And I get right back to you. Oh, thank you. And see, that's Jersey right there, man. All heart. Hear that? (laughs) (laughs) All right, buddy. You are awesome. John, John, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And uh, God bless you through the Christmas season. Yeah, God bless you too, brother. You're awesome. I'm I'm happy for your 30-year-old brother and glad he's got it figured out. Yeah, well, me too. It was a long road for him watching it firsthand and it was hard. And it's hard um, on your parents, boy. It, yeah, to this day. And, you know, that's also something that's important for me is, to realize is I can't judge the person in their actions because where they're coming from is not a place of 
real wholeness, right? Drugs really affect how you see the world, how you react to things, your uh, maturity level. And when I'm dealing with that with certain members of my own family and also people I know that are going through this, it's tempting to, I guess, judge or maybe uh, try to look at their behavior from a way that uh, I guess you just have to realize that where they're coming from is not a place that you might relate to, right? Like we said before, that's exactly right. Yeah. Rational has become irrational and yeah, they might make a decision that just looks like the stupidest thing they could ever do, but in their brain, because they're dealing with addiction, you know, things aren't right. That's right. And we need help. We need it. We need to love them unconditionally. That's it. But that, you know, that love doesn't mean that we're always nice. Like, you know, an inter, uh, like if you get to a place where you really feel like a direct intervention, because I did that to my brother. He went through multiple rehabs. Yeah. I think five, five. I'll never forget once it was winter and my folks weren't home. And I see my brother running down the back hill of our house in his boxers, barefoot. <laughs> Because he'd escaped from the rehab facility. This is Minnesota in winter. I don't even know. He hitchhiked. And then as soon as he gets home, he starts freaking out, panicking, and wondering if mom and dad are home and wanted me to call a cab to send him back. Mostly (laughs) because he just didn't want to get in trouble with my mom and dad again. Yeah. But for him, um, he woke up face down in a gutter in New York City when he was 28 years old and could not remember the last week of his life. And I got to tell you, God, because he was gross and just cold, wet. And right next to him was a church. Mm. And the church is always locked up. This is New York City. Yeah. But this one door that he tried was open. And right inside was an altar that the priests use. I can't, I think a Catholic church, I think. And he just laid on the altar and said, God, I need help. I don't want to die. He realized that if he kept going, he would die. And that's actually when he went and got treatment. And I think that's part of it, too, is finding those people that can connect somebody who's addicted to why they want to get free of it. Yeah. Not going to do it because we cajole and exhort and yell and rationalize with them. We have to learn a different skill set. Yeah, that's right. We can't do it that way. You're right. Yeah. All right, man. Enjoy your your time with your three-year-old grandson. I will. Thanks. I can't say that I'm not jealous. So. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you, John. I'm very blessed. See you, I, hope we have the, I hope we have the pleasure of meeting one day. Yes, me too. Take care. You too. <laughs>